All right, we're live. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the third rail. I am your host, Omar. I would like to thank you for uh, joining us and watching this podcast. I have a special guest today. He's he has been a lawyer for more than thirty years. He represents the the the, the bail bond uh, uh, industry, and his name is uh, Ken W. Goods. Is that it? Yes, sir. Welcome to the podcast, sir. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I am. I'm glad to have you here. Uh, I want to start. Usually, start. I usually ask the person that I'm interviewing is, "Who are they as a human being? Who are you, Mister Goods, as a human being?" Uh, who am I as a human being? Yeah, I, a, uh, a Christian, I guess, probably the way I was raised. That would be the first thing I would say. Mm-hmm. I'm a husband, uh, married mm-hmm. to another attorney. We have two children. Uh, growing up quickly. Um, I am the father, I mean, the, the son of two, uh, public school teachers who taught me to work hard. And if you work hard, that you will be rewarded. And, uh, I have probably spent my entire life working hard. No, I'm, I'm glad, you know, you're the first person who answered that question, right? I've been doing this more than what, got my 57 interview. And they, I'm going to ask them who they are, the person, they start talking about the career. I want to know who you are, your father, son, you know, as I want to, I want to see who you, the human, you, the human person in you. Okay, sir. Welcome to the, okay, Ken, can you give us uh, your educational background? Sure. Um, uh, graduated from high school, went to uh, Hardin-Simmons University in Abilene, Texas, second generation. My, my parents actually went there and that's where they met. Uh, so uh, a small uh, Christian university in Abilene, Texas. I got a master's degree in education uh, from uh, Texas A&M Tarleton, which is part uh, is in Stephenville, Texas. And then I went to law school at Texas Tech in the Panhandle in Lubbock. And I have been an attorney since 1989. What what kind of attorney were you practicing? What, what did you were you? Well, you know, I started out practicing, um, I started out representing doctors and hospitals when they got sued. I've always had an interest in appellate law, so even in law school. So um, I did a lot of appellate work uh, in medical malpractice cases and other cases. I've argued cases pr- across the state uh, and even in the federal system. Uh, probably about 20, 25 years ago, I started representing bondsmen and uh I now am Texas counsel for several insurance companies. I represent bondsmen across the state. I've argued several of the most important cases in the bail industry at the Court of Criminal Appeals in Texas. And I'm a member of the board of directors of the professional bondsmen of Texas. I'm on their legislative team and we go to the legislature and argue for or against bills that uh, affect our industry. Okay. What is the bail bond industry? I mean, how much is it worth? What does it does? I mean, is there such a is it is it a big industry in the United States? Well, you know, I would say uh, I know Texas, so I will concentrate on Texas. The bail industry has been around for over two hundred years, uh, so it's been around for a long time. I think you know, periodically we get calls to change or replace the bail industry, and they usually fail because. Nobody does it better than the bail industry, and we always try to replace it with something that doesn't work. And what we do, we do well. I mean, we do one thing well, and that's get people to go to court. And so if you want your cases to be resolved more quickly, if you want um, victims to have resolution uh, more quickly, you want the bail industry uh, to be uh, bailing out those defendants. And then if you don't care, if you don't care if people come to court, then you don't need us. 
I know, but how much is it uh, uh, in dollar value that industry? You know, I don't, I don't keep up with dollar amounts. I just know that you know we have the lowest failure to peer rate of any released mechanism, uh, and so I don't know of any statistics in Texas about what the bell industry is, or what it, what what it, what its value is. I mean, it is a it is a business. Uh, it's a uh, across the state of Texas. It's made up by mom and pop small business owners, uh, second generation sometimes, and I've known a couple of third generation bondsmen. So uh, that's only that only happens if people operate like businesses and they do their business well. Is it a profitable business? I think it can be. You know, if you take care of business, then it, it can be profitable. But if you don't take care of business, you won't be in business very long. Yeah, okay. You, you said you have an issue with the latest, you know, defund the police, all these crazy ideas that uh, my friends are liberals. I'm a liberal, by the way, who are going nuts a little bit. Uh, what's this about the bail reform? What is that? What do you want to reform about the bail uh, industry? Well, I think, you know, I think initially, probably about five or six years ago, we were told we have to change bail because it's going to be held unconstitutional. Right. And so we have to change the way we're doing it. Uh right. In the interim, uh, the opposite's been true. Bell has been held constitutional. Right. And so then we hear the argument that, well, we need to change what we're doing because it's just not fair. It's not fair uh, to, uh, we have to treat everybody the same. And so I think the focus now is on fairness. And and I think that that um, is a false uh, argument, false uh, narrative, because, you know, I don't think the uh, legal or the uh, criminal justice system seeks to treat everybody the same. We want to treat people that have substantial criminal histories more, more severely than people that are arrested for the first time. So to say that we need to treat everybody the same is, is a false narrative. We need to apply just the right amount of pressure to each individual to get them to comply with the law going forward. And someone with a substantial criminal history means more pressure than a first time offender. And so I think that's true about bail. Sometimes you know, if you have a substantial criminal history, then you're at a greater risk of not coming to court. And so your bond needs to be higher. And then in some severe situations, you shouldn't be released from jail. And in, in other words, like a credit card <laughs> score, right? Like, is that gonna, can you put but it yeah. down? Right? I mean, the, the, the worse you are as a criminal, the more it should be expensive to uh, to to to, uh, to give you a bond, right? Is that what you're trying yes. to say, sir? Yeah, but, you know, I will tell you, I think the problem that we have in the bail reform movement is it's the same problem that nobody can can find a solution to. And that is, how do we release lar large numbers of people in our urban areas? How do we process them through the jail quickly and efficiently? You know, there's a couple of ways that are constitutional. We know they're proper. And then we go out on this on these on these limbs and try these things that just don't work. So. Historically, we know that individual magistration works, but that's very costly when you're processing large numbers of people. Historically, we've used bail schedules. That's what have been under attack for the last few years. And so we're abandoning those, even though the Fifth Circuit has said they're constitutional if you provide safeguards for the poor. Oh, yeah. and so we were switching to what they've done in New York and Harris County, which is just simple release where you're released without ever seeing a magistrate. Or when you get there, like in New York, they have, they're, they're told they have to release you with no bail, no matter what your criminal history is. And that's where we're having problems. We have no gatekeeper. Nobody's holding people accountable. And, and that's what's a complete failure, is they're trying to replace the bail industry with simple release, and that's just not working. So what I want to ask you, uh, Ken, is that um, before the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, 
whatever you want to call it, you know, my, my English is not as great as you are. But um, 43% of Americans didn't have $500 uh, 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 for a rainy day for a problem. Like if, if an emergency came up, they didn't have more than $500 in the bank to fix it. So that means they'll be in the hole. So how do you deal with those families? Let's say they make a simple mistake. Oh, they you know, they do something. You know, people do do stupid things once in a while. They drink a lot, whatever. So how do you do with those people who might end up going to jail? They can't afford to get out. Then they lose their job. They lose. Then you know, it's like a a, a snowball uh, thing. Then they they can't pay maybe their mortgages or pay their bills, and all of a sudden, you know, they're in a hole. You know. Well, we hear those arguments all the time, and it just makes yeah. it sound like our whole criminal justice system is made up of first time offenders. Right. And what we forget is we have organized crime. We have career criminals and, you know, we have people that are just mischief makers. We have like gangs and th that's what we forget. We forget. And so I, I would argue, you know, respectfully with the, uh, with the assumption that, that our jails are full of first time offenders. I, and especially now with the pandemic, that's absolutely not true. Yeah. But I think at, even before I don't believe our jails are full of first-time offenders. I think our our criminal justice system is, like I've said, we want to mete out the the pressure needed for the the crime or the per criminal history. And so, someone who's already arrested on a first-time offense, I think they have always been treated differently. We always now we hear, well, we you know these people are going to lose their jobs. I think that's all based on science that is 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 coming from from the left, and it's not really science. It's just those are common sense arguments. Somebody who's in jail is going to lose their job if they stay in jail very long. Yeah. It's true for everybody. But the yeah. point I want to make is when we make reform or when we set up reforms, if we set them up with good intentions to protect the first time offender, but in doing so we tie the hands of the judges right. so they can't address career criminals or organized crime or gangs well, then this is what causes crime to increase because right. we're not giving the judges the discretion to address the real bad elements of society because of our intention to make sure that uh, the first time offenders are protected. I, I, I just disagree that that's what needs to happen or that the jails are full of those people. And I would argue that in doing that, we're actually causing crime to increase because of the career criminals and gangs and organized crime. Okay, I want to ask you, where's the starting point? Let's say if I commit a crime, where's the starting point for me? Oh, what kind of crime I have to commit to qualify for, um, I, I qualify, I mean, to be, uh, uh, to have to put a, a bond or, 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 what do you call it, a bail bond? You know, I've never been a criminal, so I don't know what, even what it's called, you know, a bail bond thing, where I have to pay something to get out of jail. Where, where's the starting point? I mean, a burglar, a uh, car thief, uh, jaywalker. Y'all who jumped the train to and style. I mean, where does it start? Well, like in Texas, we would classify it as C misdemeanor, B misdemeanor, A misdemeanor, C the lowest, B higher, A higher. And then we've state jail felony, then we felony, then we have our capital offenses. And right. so we have a spectrum. Right, and right. where you fall on there, I think, should depend on your criminal history. So you're arrested on a class B misdemeanor. So that's like almost a traffic ticket. But if you have a substantial criminal history, I think your bond should be different than if you were a first-time offender and got arrested for a cla for class B theft or a class B something else. I mean, I think it all should fly uh, should flow off of your criminal history. Um, 
And then I think, you know, in Texas, they set bond at an amount that will ensure uh, that will be sufficiently high to give you an incentive to appear for court. Okay, I mean, um, some people will say, listen, we live in a society that's not uh, uh, what they call systemic uh, racism, whatever you want to call that, all uh, uh, minorities or black uh, criminals are looking, are look at different than a, an urban, uh, not, not an urban, a suburban criminal who, you know, a good looking kid, you know, and all that stuff. Is, is there fair justice in the United States? Is, it, is justice blind in the United States? That's what I, is it really blind? Well, I mean, I would say we have the fairest justice system of the world. Right. Is there room for improvement? Yes. But I, I would, I would dispute, and I think there would be people on the left that would disagree with me, but I would dispute that we have systemic racism in our justice system, especially in our urban areas. What we have is we have drug problems, severe drug problems in our urban areas. We have schools that have failed in our urban areas. We have families that have failed in our urban areas. And so what we have is, uh, and now with the the riots or the protests from 2020, we have less business opportunity, less job opportunity because businesses that were burned didn't come back. And so you have people in the urban areas that have substantial crime going on. And I think it's because of all those things. And I don't think that is because of a specific race. I think that's because everybody that can afford to move out of the urban, those urban areas has moved out and the people that are left or minorities but that's not a systemic racist problem. That is a, a societal problem where they're the victims of a lot of things, but they're victims of where uh, schools have failed and families have failed. And I think that has more to do with it than anything else. And the drug problem, the massive drug problem we have in our urban cities. Yeah, I'm going to give you an example here. and You tell me if I'm right or wrong. I mean, you're a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, during the crack epidemic, uh, uh, crack Users and the dealers were, were considered criminals. They were both jailed. You understand? A lot of black people went to jail. I, you know, I was a young kid and I saw this toxic ecosystem. I, you know, I lived in Minority neighborhoods. I'm from New York, from Brooklyn, New York. And I saw this, you know, as a kid, I used to observe all this toxicity. The kids are selling drugs to their to their neighbors and their neighbors are losing their jobs. It was a destructive behavior. But the, my, my, my question is here, uh, the the... the the addicts were treated as criminals and went to jail. But right now we have the opiate crisis, which is affecting like white America. Excuse me. I don't want to use you know, race as an old suburban America. It's treated as a medical problem instead of a criminal record. Uh, so you understand what I'm saying? If you if you smoke crack as a black man, you went to jail for three, four or five years. But if you're an opiate uh, 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 user right now in this day and age, you are treated as a medical issue. You need help. It's a health issue. It has not. You should not be put in. So you understand how sometimes people say, well, it's not fair. The justice system is not really blind. You know what I'm trying to get out here? Well, I, I don't. Okay, so let me state it a different way, because I think we have people who um, saw that history of, and they would say, well, the drug, uh, the war on drugs failed. And, and I don't I don't agree with that. I would say right now we're in a period where, you know, we're, we're, we're suffering the consequences of, of all of that knowledge and all of that uh, expense. And now we're saying, well, we want to put it somewhere else and and we want to put it in other programs. And so we want to try something different. I don't think it's because it's a opiate versus um, crack. I think it's because of the history of the expense. Now, I think the, the change in, in theory is wrong though, because I think so much of our crime 
is in our society is built off of the drug trade. And so when we are, when we have, when we have groups that are pushing for rehab, we don't have the room for that. And so in, instead it turns out to be, we're pushing for that, but we're really not doing anything. We're giving them a class and we're giving them a little booklet. We're saying you're successful. And then we're pushing them off so that they can, can, can do their next hit, find their next drugs, go commit yeah. more crime to, so they can get money to get drugs. And so I think we're actually seeing the, the, the effects of the uh, drug epidemic even go higher and I think that's one of the things that's causing crime because we really have quit fighting uh, the war on drugs. And this and we have this myth of we're going to uh, concentrate on rehab, but we're not. I mean, we don't have anybody any way to make somebody to go to rehab if we're not going to arrest them. If we're not threatening them with jail to give them an incentive to go to rehab, then they're not going to go. Yeah, I was going to save this for later, but I'm going to ask you now since we're talking about it. Um, should drugs be legalized? No. No, because the the basis of so much of our crime in the United States is built off of the drug trade. If we make drugs yeah. legal, we are we are turning over so much of our country to the control of cartels, to the drug trade, to gangs. I mean, look at the statistics from Colorado just legalizing marijuana. I mean, they've added so much tax burden and regulation on that that you're starting to see more and more people return to <laughs> illegal uh, sources to buy it because we've we've tried to overregulate it. And that was the whole argument. Oh, we make it legal. We're going to make it safe. Well, we we're doing the opposite. People are returning. And, and also we, you know, it's not even safe to say, well, are you, it's not even appropriate to say, well, you know, what's the number of driving accidents that have increased because of the use of people driving under the uh, influence of marijuana. And so we just, we, we're told we can't talk about those things or we're shamed if we even try to, but no, we, we should not legalize these drugs because they're the source of so many crimes that are driving our criminal justice system. If it's not the outright use of drugs, it's theft or find ways to get money to go buy drugs. And uh, I read a book one time that said, if you were able to uh, address the number of crimes that arise from the drug trade, it would be an astronomical percentage of the total number of crimes committed. So if we give up and we legalize drugs, we're giving up on crime. Yeah, I understand. See, there's some European country that does that. Like, I, I don't know, it's Holland, I think. Where they even give heroin. The, whoever addicted, they go to a certain center once a day or twice a day. They go get their shot free, free from the government or whatever. I don't know what drug they give them to substitute for heroin. And they go to work. They hold their job. They're addicts already. They can't do anything. But the idea is if you give it to them and have it in a clean, safe place, you take the cartels out of the, the picture. Because you don't need no drug dealers if the government is doing it or if there are clinics that's doing it or nonprofit organizations that's doing it. Second of all, the person doesn't have to go steal a car or, 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 or burglarize or beat up a grandma down the street at a grocery store to get $5 to go get a heroin or whatever. You understand? So you take that, uh, you take the mat from under the criminals. Once you make it available, once it becomes available, even prostitution, are you a favorite legalizing that? I'm, I was going to ask you all this later, but I'm, I'm sorry I had to push your in because you, you, you brought it up. Because okay. So let's talk about prostitution for a minute. If I leave, if you legalize prostitution, then this is what happens because it's already been threatened to see you have somebody cute girl, who doesn't? Uh, who wants to turn down a job? Turn down a job offer working in a, a place of prostitution. 
well, if if we legalize prostitution, if they're offered that job, then they they no longer are entitled to unemployment because they were offered a job and they turned it down. And so that's that's ludicrous. We should not. I mean, we we, we should as a country stand for something. And so why? I mean, why are we turning to all of these moral issues in saying, uh, well, let's legalize that. Let's let's manufacture and distribute drugs. And so just give them away free. That's going to decrease crime if we just get I mean, are you going to make everybody addicted to drugs? I know we're talking about a very small country, but we're trying to up it uh, and put it on a scale of the United States of America, one of the largest countries in the world. And uh, no, and think about it. You're taking on the drug cartels when you do that. You're taking away their market share. You think they're going to just take that uh, line down? No. I mean, what does it matter? We do. Do I really care what the cartels think in Mexico? I'm the United States of America. You understand? Well, I, you see, uh, uh, Ken, I'm probably conservative, socially like you are. You understand? When it comes to social issue, I don't agree with the stuff I'm telling you right now. It really doesn't really, I mean, I'm probably on the same side you're on, looking at it through the lens of family values and things like that. But the liberal in me and, and to try to, uh, because we have 2.0 million Americans in jail. That's, we have the largest population jail in the world. We have in jail what amounts to four countries in the Persian Gulf, you know, the Arab Gulf countries. Uh, they are like 400,000, you know. That's crazy. You have 2 million Americans in jail. But we also have the yard, largest drug use in the world, too. That's I what mean, I'm saying. You, you yeah. can't say, okay, we have the largest drug use. Drug use of, of, I mean, this is where all the drugs go, and yeah. we can't, well, we shouldn't punish everybody. Uh, we should have a disproportionate punishment because we have a disproportionate use. Uh, that's, I mean, yeah, absolutely. We have a large pr- prison population because all the drugs come to the United States. I know, but the, most most of these people in jail are for some stuff. The majority were for marijuana use or for law. I don't doubt. agree with that. I don't think that the majority yeah, I, of the people in our prison are, are marijuana use. Well, they're not, they're the majority of the people in our prison are you know dangerous people that need to stay there with gang members. But not two million. I mean, two no, million. You don't, well, I mean, I mean we don't have two million marijuana users in the jail either. I know, but you don't have two million killers. We'd be all dead. You understand? Yeah. Well, we don't know. I mean, the whole idea. What I'm trying to get at. I understand your position. Uh, Ken, you probably raised in Texas, conservative family, true Christian, and stuff like that. But there are these little things we could get rid of, like uh, sex workers in Holland. They work clean, safe place, no sex trafficking, no pimp, no middleman. They don't go to jail. They go to a storefront, they work, they pay taxes, the government benefit, they clean, they get the cleanup bill of health all the time. So you prevent the uh, uh, sexual transmitted disease. You get the pimp out of the way. You get the sex trafficking of children and young women from country to country to sell them uh, to prostitution. And not everybody wants to be a prostitute. I grew up in the worst neighborhood in Brooklyn. I never did any marijuana. I never did any of this or drank. Not everybody's going to fall into that trap. So my, my, my idea is that if a woman goes to a bar and drinks the whole night and probably have intimate relations with three men, it's okay. But if, God forbid, she takes $20, we have to arrest her and we have to call your company to put some bail bond to get her out. You know what I'm trying to say here? There are certain things we could get rid of and save money in the long run and, and get rid of all this and concentrate on the real crimes, you know? You know, you know that's kind of one of the arguments we keep hearing. You know, I have a... 
there's a state senator in Texas that says, you know, you know, we should only be putting the people in jail who we're afraid of, not the people we're mad at. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why we're going through this crime increase right now is I think that a lot of people uh, that are being arrested on crimes that make you mad are hearing those things and they're hearing and they're getting, and they're seeing that as a green light to commit more crime. And so they're going, they're, they're right now trying to figure out how mad they can make us without uh, getting uh, held accountable. And so right now they're there's, in New Ooh. York, and Texas, you're seeing like in Harris County, you're seeing a lot of people trying to make us mad. Well, uh, we have an issue here in New York. A lot of people will let out and our crime just jump up to the roof uh, with, with petty criminals and all that stuff. Uh, but the problem, there's a phenomenal going on in the United States. Crime all of a sudden just went up, shot up. While we were all at home, we were, we were quarantined at home, and we have more murder, more violent crime. Why? Why, why do you think that? Why, why did we reverse while you're going down through the last 20 years? Crime was actually going down in the United States. Now, all of a sudden, it's going up in every, even red states, Tennessee, all, all over. Well, I think you're seeing the biggest increases in our urban areas, and yeah. I, I think that's part of the problem. A lot of those urban areas... Uh, attempted some uh, criminal justice reform that in involves some type of bail reform. So I think a lot of the crime that we're seeing increases because of, of those types of things. I think you also see the defund the police movement. I think the defund the police movement has been a fiasco. And also when you yeah. take money away from, uh, from the police departments, and then at the same time you release significantly number of uh, significant numbers of criminals from the jail. I mean, a plus, B equals C, when you lower the uh, police on the streets and you increase the criminals on the streets, there's going to be an increase in crime. Add to that the pandemic where there's been a, a, a large, a substantial increase in family um, violence uh, situations because they're stuck in the house with their assailant. Uh, and also, as a result, you see crime go up everywhere. You see drug use go up everywhere. You see... Uh, Suicide increased substantially. You see depression increase. Uh, and so you, we just have bad decisions being made everywhere. Uh, I think the, uh, during the pandemic when we were saying, well, let's just release people because we don't want the jails full of people with COVID. I think that was a, a review or a kind of a preview of what some of these criminal justice reform uh, proposals would look like because we put them into effect immediately and you got example after example of people being rearrested re multiple times within a day because right. they just, hey, if you keep releasing me and telling me no consequences, I'm going to accept that and I'm going to commit more crime. Um, and, you know, Harris County, they're keeping track of like a, almost 200 people who that were who were who have been killed by people who were out on a PR bond or somebody who was out after they'd already been accused of murdering one person. They were out. Uh, on bond and a very low bond and commit another murder. So we just, we've kind of quit. We've given up on the concept of accountability We're we're no longer holding people accountable. It's not the first time offenders. It's the, you know, you get arrested for the fourth time. You don't show up for court five or six times and we're still giving you that second chance. Well, when are we going to stop with the sixth or seventh chance? I mean, where are we going to start holding people accountable? That's got to be part of this uh, uh, analysis of, why crime is increasing? We've just quit holding people accountable. You know, in the in the uh, I think it was the uh, the, the two thousand, we had the highest murder rate in the United in New York in the United States. I think the uh, ninety. I don't know. Was it Giuliani? Uh, Mayor Giuliani first. 
they had this uh, good idea. It was called the broken window policy. The broken window policy was if you get the small crimes, you're going to prevent the big crime. And I agree with that. I lived through that era. It was dangerous. You could not walk. We had people drinking in the street. The police would come take the, the, the beer bottles and break them down until you go home. We'll give you a ticket. Oh, take it to jail. So why can't we do that again? I mean, I mean, uh, prevent. Uh, like people who used to jump the turnstile in the train, mostly were uh, were either wanted or had a record. They didn't it. So they were cleaning up the street. It was good. I understand. But I mean, why can't we have those policies back without really... You know, I really agree with that. I think that's a very important point. And we're kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum right now. You know, the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction. We're now saying, well, we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, hold the people on the nonviolent offenses criminal because, you know, they they shouldn't be, you know, those people that we should be releasing. And so we're kind of doing the opposite. And I think that's exactly what the problem is when you're when in fact, I think it's a bad situation for those people when they get arrested and they get arrested three times for the same crime. Like in Harris County, they never see a magistrate. They're released on a $100 PR bond every time because nobody's looking at their criminal history. They see that as a green light and they commit more and more crime. And as they get more bold, they commit more severe crime. And when they finally do cross the line, now they're in a much worse situation than if we had just done the broken windows approach. Maybe we have gotten them turned around and become productive citizens without now they're going to be looking at substantial jail time unless we just kind of give up on accountability completely. Why do you think uh, a country as rich as our country, a democratic country as ours, why do we have so much crime? I mean, uh, we have the best researchers, the best education, the, the state from the the, what do you call it? From the cradle to the grave, you know, the, some welfare states. Why do you think we are we have a violent society or, or criminal society? I mean, I don't want to. Well, you know, I think part of it is we have to go back and say, do we believe that people are good people or do we believe people are bad people? I mean, when you go down to someone's very nature, I mean, I think we have to start with, well, are we good or are we bad? And uh, I mean, as, as Christians, we believe that our very nature is bad until we uh, accept Christ and, and pursue a, a personal relationship with him. And so I would say that I kind of fall on the side that we have a, a, a nature that uh, can get us in trouble. And so I think when you add drugs to it yeah. or you add broken homes to it or yeah. you add school failed schools, then it's a recipe for disaster. And, you know, we are one of the, you know, we are the richest country in the world, but we're making really bad choices. We're throwing lots of monies at the inner city schools and it's being wasted because it's, it's not helping. We're, we're throwing money in California to building homes for homeless and it's not getting where it needs to be. And so they're not getting the benefits. And then we're, um, we're, we're throwing money at trying to keep families together, but it's not getting there. Even though we're throwing all this money at schools, the dropout rates in the inner cities is, is skyrocketing. We, we have all these uh, benefits and these programs for, um, rehabilitation for drug use and it's not getting where it needs to be because we still have record drug use in the inner city. So I think part of the problem is we just have a political class that right. is just raping and pillaging our urban areas and nobody's holding them accountable for that. And so as long as that continues, we're, we're throwing away so much money in our urban areas. And now we're going to the criminal justice system and saying, well, you know, instead of saying, hey, this is their last chance to become productive citizens, we're giving up on them there, too. And that's got to stop. 
what role has uh, uh, what role has the the bail reform played in the rise in crime? I see. I think it has played a substantial role in the rise in crime. There's a report from Harris County by the district attorney's office who has attributed rising crime to increase uh, increase recidivism rate in uh, the misdemeanor reforms uh, that they did in Harris County. And I think you can, I mean, it just makes common sense. If you get arrested, you never see a magistrate, you get released on a hundred dollar PR bond and you get released within, you know, within a blink of an eye, you go, well, that, you know, they're never going to do anything to me. They're now dismissing 69% of the uh, misdemeanor cases filed in Harris County. And they're saying, well, that's a, that's a sign that misdemeanor bail reform is working. No, that's a sign that the criminal justice system on misdemeanors in Harris County has collapsed yeah. because they created a system where no one gets punished for not showing up for court. In fact, their reform says you can you have to miss court at least th three times before they can do anything to you. So you learn how to play the system. You just don't show up. And then over time, they just dismiss your case. And if you dismiss your case, the victims don't have justice then you're just you're emboldened to commit more crime because crime pays in your mind. And so I think that criminal justice reform, where we've taken accountability out of the system, has really caused crim uh, crime to increase. And it will continue to do so as long as we're, we're not holding people accountable. And, you know, the best thing we can do is, OK, you want to give somebody a break, give them a low bond. Fine. If they don't show up for court, they got their break. You want to give them a second chance? Okay, but you, you don't give them a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth case. I mean, you know, there's an example in Harris County, and this is just one of many examples. Yeah. I was 35 years old. He'd been arrested over 70 times. Wow. And he killed this 80-year-old grandma in the parking lot of Walgreens. And at the time he killed her, he killed her, he was out on two personal bonds, PR bonds, uh, for, for felony cases. So they just didn't want him in the jail. So they just released him. What's a PR? Uh, PR bond is a free bond. Oh, it's a bond without sureties where you're saying, hey, I will sign this piece of paper saying I'm going to show up for court. And so he, even though he had a substantial criminal history, over 70-something charges in the past, he was had two felony cases pending. They released him on free bonds because they didn't want him in the jail. And he killed this 80-something-year-old 80 -year grandma in the parking lot of Walgreens. But I mean, if he did 70 times, I, I don't think he even should have a bond at all. He should be in jail a long time ago. He should not have been. In, yeah. And the problem is, if he hadn't gotten a PR bond, he wouldn't have been at, He wouldn't have been out of jail because no one was calling a bondsman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had 70 charges. He Nobody was calling for him. That's the reason why the court gave him PR bonds, because his family had stopped. They were through with him. And so substantial uh, felony bonds, he would have stayed in jail. But they, they just didn't want him. They wanted him out. So they gave him PR bonds. I, th I think I saw you on a video on YouTube by accident because I was trying to study you and I put your name. I think they had this thing about it was pro, it was anti uh, bail bond. They were saying that, um, you know, they were saying that it's the same talk, you know, um, if people get uh, arrested, they have $500 bond, they can afford it, they lose their job, and it's uh, and it rolls downhill from there. And they said they had a uh, that people ninety percent of people came back to court who didn't have no bonds. I think I don't know. I'm not sure I heard that right. Uh, do you have any statistics to to? Uh, yes, surety bonds have the lowest failure to appear rate of any release system. Right. So if you want people to show up for court, you want more of them on uh, our system. 
Personal bonds have the highest failure to appear rate of any release mechanism in use. Uh, so if, you know, like PR bonds being used right now in misdemeanor courts in Harris County, over 50, 60% of every docket, the P, uh, people on PR bonds don't show up for court. And, and so what happens when you when you don't show up? That means your case gets put on hold. That means they can't go forward until you come back. And that might be just a couple of hours. It might be a couple of days. But if you get scared and you're on the run, then you may have to commit another crime to get pulled back into the system. And, and you know, when you're on a bond with us, the system gives us authority to go look for you. Uh, we have incentives for going and getting you and bringing you back. There's no other mechanism that for release that does that. I mean, we provide supervision when you're out. And if we see a problem, we ha- we can approach the court to get a warrant for your arrest. And when we do that in Texas, we seek a warrant that gives the court special powers that they didn't have before we filed it. And so I think people don't realize we are, we are true partners in the criminal justice system. And we like to describe ourselves as we are the grease that keeps the conveyor belt moving because like in Harris County, every week, a thousand new misdemeanor cases are added to the conveyor belt. How big big is Harris County? It's like, it's the biggest County in Texas, like over 3 million, I believe. And and so it's like one of the biggest cities in the United States, but so it has, on average, a thousand new misdemeanor cases added to the criminal justice system every week. Anything that slows you down and prevents you from resolving your thousand cases from the week before or your your inventory, that just means your inventory backlog is going to increase. The problem that we have with the mis- the overuse of PR bonds in Harris County is, is causing a substantial backlog. Before the pandemic, their backlog had already doubled as a result of these PR, use of these PR bonds. So you can imagine what they are now. Okay, this is somebody wrote, uh, bail reform is something that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. Good job, folks. Oh, okay, thank you. He's telling us we're doing a good job. All right. Um, so um, how do we solve the, 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 the bail bond issue? I mean, some people will say, oh, Ken, it's $500. It's nothing, but he's going to stay in jail 30 days. If you put the cost, it's going to cost the state about what, a couple thousand dollars to keep him in jail, then the $500 that he was about to lose. How do you tell the, how do you answer that? Beth? If you, if you get, if you're arrested on a misdemeanor offense and they say, okay, we're going to give you Omar, we're going to give you a PR bond, but just to make sure you're okay, we're going to give you a, a requirement to get a GPS monitor on your leg, on your ankle. And we're going to make you get some interlock on your car. You've now, what you've been ordered to do costs you two or three times what you would ever have to pay to a bondsman. And so oh, yeah. we keep saying, well, okay, we can make sure they're okay with a PR bond and we can give them all these conditions. Those conditions price themselves out of the market. It makes it so that it's just terrible. And the $500, you know, bondsmen today, they haven't been collecting all their fee before getting a bond posted in probably a couple of decades. We've been using payment plans. I mean, if you've got, uh, you know, a hundred dollars, so you can start a payment plan with a bondsman and get out of jail. I mean, uh, you know, we're small businesses. We work with people in the community. That's what we've done for decades, and that we would do with you. And especially if you, Omar, were a first-time offender and somebody gave you a bond, a bonding company would see you as someone that they would want to work with. 
Right, and right. here's here's why I think th there's a difference. You know, uh, you know, there's three types of bonds. There's you know a PR bond, a surety bond, and then we call it a cash bond, which is just someone you put up cash instead of going to a bondsman and getting a thousand dollar bond, you put up a thousand dollars cash. But you know, these are wayward children. These are children who've kind of you know are, are people who kind of didn't fit into society, or they've kind of gotten crossed with society, or they're drug addicts. Who's going to remind them to go to court? Who's going to call them up and check on them? You know, when you don't show up for court on a PR bond, there's nobody going to look for you. It's just a warrant issue. The warrant goes down to the warrant department in our urban areas. It joins hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of other warrants waiting to be served. But if you're on a surety bond, we're calling. We're calling you to remind you to go to court. We're calling to check on you. Uh, we're requiring you to check in with us at least once a week. If it's a big enough bond, you may even have to come to our office. We may have an app that you use so that you have to check in. It tells us your GPS coordinates when you check in. So we're keeping up with you. Yeah. We have family members usually involved on our on, on certain size bonds. And if they come to us and say, Ken, Omar is back to using drugs. Right. Well, then we can go to the court and say, Omar's using drugs again. We want a warrant. Cash can't do that. PR bonds can't do that. PR bonds with a GPS monitor. PR bonds with a GPS monitor and interlink don't do that, and they cost much more than anything that we charge. I was going to ask you that. I mean, do you think there's a feature in the GPS ankle monitor as, as we go ahead you know, with technology? I think you guys are going to be obsolete in 20 years. If you have somebody, you know, they've been saying that probably for you know 200 years. You know, the problem that we've got is, you know, people want to replace us now, but they're replacing us with systems that are creating chaos and are not working. The so, ankles, how much would it cost to put an ankle on a person? I mean, be cheap. Gonna, sometimes it costs. Huh, I don't know, but I would say, let's say, fifty to two hundred bucks a month. Right. I mean, if your case takes a year to get resolved. Yeah. That's over $600 a year. If it takes right. two years to get resolved because they're a year backlog because of the pandemic costs yeah. over $1,000. That's if it's only 50, if it's a hundred, if it's 200, then you, I mean, you have made a huge investment in GPS and then you've got examples of people cutting them off or doing it on the weekends because yeah. the sheriff's office doesn't have anybody there monitoring yeah. it on the weekends. Yeah, but uh, could you use a hybrid like the the violent criminals should get bonded or should be put in jail, or some idiot like Omar who jumped a turnstile or speeding or urinated? Well, you know, the problem with that is it's you know that's kind of the federal system. The federal system has a, a catch and or you know a, um, a detain or release, yeah. and you know they don't use a lot of uh, surety bonds. They can, some of them can, but most of them it's just a detain or release. The problem with that is they have a lot of presumptions for detention. So like almost all drug crimes would be detained, not released. And we don't have the infrastructure. I mean, you know, the problem we have in California right now is the courts are ordering uh, them to release people from the prisons. They're not building more prisons. They don't want to create more prisons. So we've got um, an infrastructure that wants to make a smaller number of beds available, which is causing people with uh, criminal histories more to be released, which would then cause more crimes to be increased. I mean, that's really one of the really substantial problems in New York. You know, they used to have uh, much many more beds, and they kind of um, made them 
made the number of beds available down to 8,000 instead of used to be 12. Well, that's 4,000 more people that, that are, are criminals who are just been released onto uh, the community. And of course, if you're downsizing your police department, that's going to cause crime in itself to go up. And then when you got people on the steps of the courthouse bragging, value form is great. I've been arrested 80 something times and I've been released each time. Well, that's going to cause crime to go up too. That's a failure of the, uh, the justice system more than just the bail bond or anybody else's. If you let some guy do 80 times a crime and don't hold him responsible after 10 times or 15 times. Well, you know, but I think that's part of the problem is we just have given up on accountability. And right. I think part of the problem is because our, our, our capacity to hold them. I think that our jails are full right now of yeah. very dangerous people because of the pandemic. And so yeah. now we're, you know, what are we going to do? If we start holding people accountable, we're going to have to put a lot of people in jail more than usual until they learn, okay, if they don't do what they're supposed to do, they're going to be held accountable. And so I think that part of the problem is we don't have the capacity to hold people accountable right now okay. and the criminals know it. So uh, I, I want to ask you something, Ken. Um, so are you trying I, I, I don't know, you know, are you trying to tell me that maybe the, the bail bond industry uh, helps tames down crime? Is that what we're trying to, is that yes. your purpose? Well, I would say we do. We do it in several ways. Number one, we could do it because we get your case to the finish line quicker. And if we can get the case resolved quicker, then the victim gets resolution and you get to go either free or you get to go serve your time. So right. I think that's one way. And then the second way is we provide supervision. I mean, we are uh, talking to them weekly or we make them come and see us weekly. We're talking to family members or, and if they're telling us or if we see a problem, we can report that to the court right. and the court can, has the ability to bring them in and in Texas and say, what's going on? We're going to put you back in jail. So, yeah, I think that the, the bail community absolutely can uh, uh, decrease the, cr uh, the crime wave. And um, I would say in the areas, in our urban areas where we're not, it's because the courts there have given up on caring whether people come to court. Well, the, the urban area is um, just too much crowd of everything. It's too much of everything. You know, a, a lot of stuff, things that happen, a lot of noise, a lot of things, you know. Uh, but I could give it, you know, that's why I, 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 I give an example. I mean, when I was going to college, you know, I'm a poor guy. I had not, my car I parked like in front of, it's $250 at that time in New York. I didn't have $250. My car was worth $500. You know, you know what I'm saying? It was a, a Cutlass Sierra, I think it was called, a Ford Cutlass Sierra. I, I don't even know they make them anymore. You know what I'm saying? So I lost my car because I couldn't afford to get my car out. And after that, they they pounded it, and and they and they threw another two, three, four thousand dollars in fees to hold down the car. And then when they sold it, they didn't give them the, they probably didn't get the five hundred dollars. That's what I'm trying to say. That sometimes you know, good people will end up uh, uh, um, deluded or or, or, or or a victim of the system. That you know, uh, they couldn't afford it that time, or maybe they didn't have the five hundred dollars or the thousand dollars that you did, and then. I know we talked about before when we started the show, but I'm still, you know, I want to, I want to, you know, I want to lean into it. How do we protect people who are good people? How do we protect good people who are good people? Yeah. Well, I would say we let the yeah. system work. Even if you they know, made I have faith in the criminal justice system. Yeah. And so, if you think you're wrongly accused of a crime, you've got to let the system work. You know, you know, you've got 
situations, you know, you've got, you've got, you know, attorneys coming to you and saying, you're looking at 30 years. Right. If you'll plead guilty, I can get you five. Right. Well, I didn't do it. Well, <laughs> you're going to be found guilty. Why? Well, because of the color of your skin. I don't, I don't buy that in urban areas because the jury's going to have the same color skin. The prosecutor's going to have the same color skin. The judge is going to have the same color skin. The defense attorney's going to have the same color skin because we're talking about urban areas. Yeah. Uh, I would say that our, our system is selling out people um, just to get to prevent the backlog from getting worse. And the problem with that is I don't, I don't think we have anybody that's willing to double the courts because if we're going to double the courts, we have to double our facilities. We have to double the bailiffs. We have to double the court reporters. And um, we don't have any proposal anywhere to do that. And so the proposals that we're, we're looking at are not fixing the system. They're, they're just trying to prevent the system from collapsing. And that's really the big problem here is no matter what we want to say, nobody is looking at the real problem in our urban areas. How do we process large groups of people through the jail quickly and efficiently? Simple release has failed. It has failed completely. The only thing that has historically worked is a bail schedule. The courts are now saying as long as you have procedures in place to protect the poor, then yeah. they are they work and you can use them. But our friends on the left reject that. They don't want to use them and they don't have anything to replace us with that works. And so we just have this stalemate where they won't admit what they're doing is wrong, except maybe a little bit. They agree crime's increasing. They just won't admit it's because of bail reform. And so we have this kind of stalemate. And it may take an election to, to break the stalemate. I mean, in Texas, we've seen some movement recently because uh, I think the polling has been so bad on these issues. And people want to be safe. I mean, even in our urban areas, in our minority uh, communities, you know, Minority on minority crime, people want to be safe. And if we feel like we're not safe, I think that causes people to vote in ways that they would not have in the past. And I think crime and feeling safe overcomes identity politics. It was, uh, I lived in an urban area and minority neighborhoods. The majority of people uh, just want to have a safe home. Yeah, they're very conservative. Uh, African Americans, I think they, I think they're the most religious people in the United States. I don't know why they're not Republicans, by the way, because <laughs> when you go, I'm serious. When you go Sunday, you see their churches are full, double parked. Hispanics, their churches are full. You know, full. So it's that three percent or four percent who hold the whole neighborhood hostages. It's not as bad as it used to be. I lived around the crack epidemic. We had these drug dealers. Like warlords, everyone holds a certain uh, street, 89th Street, 29th Street, and everybody, you know, was scared. You had these proud people who come home from to, from work and have to lower their heads because they don't want to make eye contact with, with their kids who are selling drugs in front of their homes. Well, I do think it's getting worse again. I think we're having areas where which are no go areas for the police, and so I think that we are entering a period where things are going getting really bad again. Okay, so uh. What do you think should they do? They should uh, have they heard the 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 bond uh, industry? Uh, uh. Well, you know, I think you know we've seen this, um, you know, these bail funds coming out being used, and, uh, and and people are saying, well, y'all, you know, people are opposing them because they're hurting the bail industry. You know, I I I I, I was on a podcast recently, and I learned a lot that I didn't know. I mean, uh, bail funds are really bonding out people that our industry would not bond out because they're bonding out people that 
families have already given up on because of their criminal history. And I think the first thing Bell Funds discovered is the same thing we already knew. There's not a lot of first-time offenders in the jail. So for them to actually do stuff, they're finding out some really dangerous people. And as people learn more and more about that, um, they're having a problem with it. Like, you know, the the leader of one of the Bell Funds said, well, their goal is to create chaos in the criminal justice system. Well, what about just helping poor people? But yeah. no, they're saying that we want to create chaos in the criminal justice. We well, you know criminal justice system doesn't like chaos and chaos usually causes problems and people will fight that. And you see states trying to limit the use of bail funds now as a result. So, but what else do we need to do? I think we need to start with accountability. If you don't show up for court or if you have a criminal history and you've got a case pending and you get a new charge, is that really someone who should be out on bail? Do they need to be held? No. And and the problem is we don't have enough capacity to hold all those people. So we've got to figure out, we got to figure out who we can hold and who we can release. And that requires the bailiffs to have, I mean, the magistrate to have more time. So we need to divert as many people away from magistration so they'll have the time they need to use their discretion to evaluate the people that need to be released that are left and the ones that they don't need to exercise their discretion on. This treating everybody the same is just a code word for create chaos. So they don't have time to differentiate the the really bad criminals from the first time offenders. And we got to figure out a way to fix that. And that is the only system that's worked is we go back and we rely more on the, on the bell industry, Mm -hmm. not less. Well, I I can assure you here in New York city, um, the mayor who was pro uh, law enforcement, pro uh, anti crime. He's a black man. I think his name is Adam Smith. Uh, yes. He was elected. Everybody got tired. Nobody wants to get marked. They started seeing the neighborhood go back to, you know, like you said, I mean, it's a pipe dream. Oh, we should all live happy. You know, everyone knows everybody. And it, no, at the end of the day, Americans, people like me and you, they want a safe place to live, they want a safe environment to live. Okay, well, there's a, we, I, will, I was listening to a podcast out of New York on this issue, and there was a, a career prosecutor. He's been in, you know, prosecuting crimes at the DA's office for 40-something years. And he was explaining uh, the math that the sponsor of the bail reform was using to argue that there's not really been any recidivism and that their bail reform has worked. And he's compared that to the real numbers. So you know, the author of the reforms are saying, oh, there's 3% recidivism. And, and he's like, they are playing with the numbers. They're cooking the books. The real numbers are 40, 50, 60% recidivism. Yeah. And you look at it and you just, it's scary. You go exactly, well, that's exactly why crime's increasing because we can't be honest people to talk about crime. It's now become so political and we have to get politics out of it and say, we have to work together to have a safe street. So let's start with this street. Let's make it safe. Then let's go to that street and the next street and we make it safe. And to do that, we have to have a no tolerance. I mean, it's like broken windows policy, like you said. And yeah. we have to get people um, and we have to have a place to send them if they're not doing what they need to do. Yeah, absolutely right. All right, Ken, I, I appreciate you for coming on the podcast. Uh, do you want to, um, where people can find you or do you want to promote anything? I mean, sure, sure. If you would like to have more information about, uh, true uh, criminal justice reform that works or what common sense bail reform looks like, I would encourage you to visit uh, the Professional Bondsman of Texas website, pbtx.com. We have a blog on there. We have you know some informational links for uh, elected officials corner. 
And, uh, you know, uh, I think I already mentioned our blog. Um, we have a lot of information on there and it'll, uh, uh, and we have a podcast and we also have a YouTube channel. Uh, we just have a, a, a great deal of information explaining why uh, crime is increasing from a law enforcement perspective and the bail industry perspective. And, and if you really, if you're from Texas, you can, you, I have a book on, on the, uh, which is a practice guide for the bail industry called Goods on Bail. And it's really just uh, this, the relevant statutes uh, applicable to the bail industry. All right. Thank you, Ken. Come in. I appreciate you. I had a good conversation. I learned a lot from you. I hope you come back again in the future. Thank well, you. Thank, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. And I, I, I do not mind talking to anybody about these issues. I don't mind arguing with anybody, but you know, the, so so much of these, the discussion today is if you disagree with the other side that you're called, a, you know, a racist, a liar, yeah. any discussion anymore. We, we just, we just call, end up calling each other names. So I can't thank you enough for having me. And thank you. Thanks for the great discussion. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. God bless you, man. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.